The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. The, the last item in the lecture notes um, that I wanted to call, you to, your, call to your attention, uh, and this sounds a little enigmatic here, Epp versus Aland. What, what am I talking about? Um, E.J. Epp is an American scholar, uh, very uh, much involved in matters of textual criticism. And um, in almost 20 years now, approximately 20 years, he delivered a paper at the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature, which meets um, every year now, just before Thanksgiving. That's why some of us will be away at the end of next week and the beginning of the following one. And um, this was a special lecture which had been uh, established, and uh, he spoke on the subject, the 20th century interlude in New Testament textual criticism. The 20th century interlude in New Testament textual criticism. And uh, the thesis of that paper was that since the time of Hort, nothing much had happened. Now, of course, he was quite aware that a lot had been happening. But in terms of carrying the discipline forward and taking into account the new evidence, uh, we had not made much progress. People were still working by default with Hort's theory of the transmission of the text when everybody knew that this that theory needed fairly significant recasting. And um, to a large extent, that lecture was a, um, you know, a real lecture <laughs> at uh, New Testament textual critics because they were not doing their job. I suppose he was trying to be provocative and try to stimulate research and so on. Well, as you can imagine, uh, people who, like uh, Kurt Aland in particular, who was the most prominent, uh, he died only this year, uh, the most prominent uh, textual critic in the 20th century, who had produced uh, you know, this edition of the Greek text, the Nestle edition, which Aland became the editor of in the 50s, and um, who is responsible for keeping track of all the papyri that are, that are discovered, and the head of the Munster uh, Institute, um, text fortune, something or other. He was not real happy about um, Epps' uh, lecture. In fact, uh, a couple of years later, the, the lecture was published in the JBL, the Journal of Biblical Literature, and a couple of uh, years later in, in New Testament Studies, a British journal, Epp got his copy in the mail, and uh, 
he saw a title that he thought he recognized. The New Testament interlude in, uh, I mean, the 20th century interlude in New Testament studies, only, although the title was in English, the, the article was in German, and Alan had written a rather, you know, um, thoughtful response. Um, now, this particular controversy or debate is important for you to get a sense of uh, some of the questions that are being uh, discussed today and uh, just exactly what has been happening. What precisely what is, has been the character of, of the progress made? And uh, I think it would be quite unfair to give the impression that little progress has been, has been made. The, you know, simply cataloging and trying to understand the character of all that has been discovered since the beginning of, beginning, beginning of the century and evaluated is a major massive undertaking, particularly when, relatively speaking, you don't have as many people in this field as you have in, in some other fields. And, and there's not the money to support that research as it is if you happen to be trying to understand the mating rituals of crocodiles or something like that. But most of the work, and this is where I think Epp uh, is correct to some, to some degree, most of the work has consisted of trying to classify, pull together the facts, you know, synthesize what's going on, and uh, we have not really made the kind of advance in understanding the, the character of the history of transmission as much as we ought to. And uh, therefore, there is a sense in which the discipline is at a transitional period. Actually, I don't think that's such a big deal. Uh, that's always the case in any discipline. You have uh, periods of consensus, then some other scholars, usually the younger scholars or whatever, or because of discoveries, begin to throw all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, monkey wrenches into the whole process. And it takes a couple of generations for, for the whole thing to come into some clear focus again. And we are at that, uh, at, th at that stage. And I hope you will not take the position that some people take, well, you see, these guys don't know what they're talking about. And, and there are all these doubts, and therefore everything is worthless. That's it's just not the way it is. But uh, you do have a, a period in which uh, there's a lot of uh, hard work that needs to be uh, done, and it is being done. And uh, when some of that work is completed, particularly the um, uh, publication of a new, totally, you know, truly comprehensive critical edition, then scholars will have the means to be able to uh, bring some uh, clarity into the transmission of the text as a result of, of that work. And that is being done. I'll give you some examples of that. Um, with regard to this next item, the evangelical scene, you could call it that uh, in the sense that, I mean, this we know this happened all the time. For example, you, you have a church in uh, Timbuktu in Egypt or something, and you have a copy of the scriptures, and it comes to your attention that there are some differences between the copy that you have and the copy that's in Constantinople. Uh, 
So you send your scribe, go out there, and make sure that our copy, you know, fits that one. Well, if the scribe, let's suppose that there are 1,000 differences, probably more than that, but let's suppose there are 1,000 differences between this copy and the copy in Constantinople. If he's a pretty good scribe, he might catch half of them. If he's an average scribe, he might catch 200 of them. And what happens is he'll start making marks on the document. Now he brings his document back. The next person that copies it, what's happening? He's mixing the text of his manuscript with the stuff that he copied from the other manuscript. And, um, and that's how you have a, a measure of textual criticism going on, but it is not always self-conscious and not systematic. Yeah, they were scribes. And they were doing what scribes normally do. See, they were not textual critics in the sense of, remember what I said that the modern discipline could only even begin once you have a movable printing press, movable type, where you can, act, where you can guarantee multiple copies that are identical. Prior to that point, you know, other considerations are taking place. One of them is, uh, the concern for clarity. And, and uh, um, you know, if you have a, a scribe or a, group of, of, or, a, or a group of scribes that are being asked to standardize the, uh, the text, uh, and they have not really done a study of manuscripts in the same way that people would, would do in the 15th, 16th century and, and later, they're, they're operating under different kinds of constraints. Some of them are the same, but some of them are different. And um, again, the, the tendency of a scribe is if, if, if he sees a reading in this manuscript uh, that is clearer than the reading in this manuscript, he will tend to choose the clear reading or the easier reading or the fuller reading. And so whoever it was that may have been responsible for the you know, production of this revised Syrian text was operating as a scribe. And in fact, that's how we know or have reason to believe, because not everybody agrees with this, but we have good reason to believe that it's like a merging because you find that somebody has taken a bit from that and a bit from that, you see, and mixed them together. Or um, there's a pattern of, of readings that uh, again cohere with some particular tendency. Modern in the probably in a, in a yeah in a sense. All right, this next item, the evangelical scene. I what I want to do here, you know, this takes a lot of time in a sense, and that's why I wrote that little thing on reformed textual criticism. Please make sure that uh, you have read that by tomorrow, if you have not so far, and. Uh, Either tomorrow or next Monday, we'll have a little bit of time to discuss that paper. Um, and again, I'm going to assume that you have read it, and I will just make a few comments about it and see what questions you may have. So uh, we'll, we'll skip this section right now and uh, move right into this next item, doing New, Test New Testament textual criticism. And um, what are the processes that uh, we can uh, use 
in order to make uh, good decisions when we face a textual variant. Well, one thing that you want to be aware of is the resources that are available to you. Um, you see these editions that have been published, some with a full apparatus. Uh, the best known is Tischendorf's eighth edition. I have a copy of that here at the table that you can look at at the end of the hour. And uh, I'm not saying that you should do that for this particular assignment, by the way. In fact, I don't want you to do that. Uh, but you should, if you, particularly if you have some interest, uh, maybe take a look at it sometime and, and see what you can do with it. Another important addition that was very full was uh, the one by von Zoden, which Metzger describes for you. Uh, von Zoden, again, was one of these brilliant people, also very idiosyncratic, who designed his own method of labeling manuscripts. And it got so complicated that you just about have to go to college uh, and have a, uh, you know, take a major on von Zoden's system of uh, labeling manuscripts. And uh, as a result, his edition is very difficult to use. But uh, it was a tremendous contribution in many ways. Uh, there was another problem. He was not always as careful as people in this field need to be. And that has made some scholars a little skeptical about the value of uh, his work. But it's still something that needs to be taken very seriously. In Britain, a um, few decades ago, there was a recognition of the need to produce a new edition. Tischendorf's was great as far as it went, but now it was, what, 40, 50 years old, and it didn't take into account some more recent discoveries. And so a project got started to try to produce a very, very full edition. Uh, the name Leg is mentioned here because he was the editor, and uh, he did manage to put out uh, volumes on Matthew and Mark. Sadly, he did not have really the support that he needed, and uh, there were a lot of problems with these editions. And uh, it got such bad press that the project came to a halt. Okay, it does not mean that it's not valuable. It's very valuable. And the people who work on Matthew and Mark in detail, you know, the edition by leg is of major importance to them. I might point out to you that the decision was made by all of the people involved in that project that the text that would be used as the base would be the Textus Receptus. Now, there was a very practical reason for that. Most of the manuscripts have, the, have something like the Textus Receptus. So if you have the Textus Receptus as the base, and then in the apparatus, you give information that is different from it, your apparatus can be shorter. See what I'm saying? Because if you, if you use a different text, uh, most of the manuscripts are going to differ from it because most of the manuscripts belong to the Byzantine text. So you're going to have to mention them every time in the apparatus. But if you have the Byzantine text to begin with up here, then you only have to give information about the manuscripts that give you something different. And so the apparatus can be a little bit more compact. So that was one of the practical reasons. Another reason was that they felt, and there was some measure of truth to this, that it is easier to distinguish 
textual traditions or textual families by comparing them against the Texas Receptus. Uh, but anyway, that's you know, not, not that big a deal for us here. I mention it because uh, German scholars in particular thought this was a stupid idea. If you're going to, to put in all that effort to come out with an exhaustive edition of the Greek New Testament, the text itself ought to be a critical text, a critically reconstructed text, and not the old Texas Receptus. So the British went about their work, and the Germans went about their work doing different things. Um, the next item here, Claremont, that, that is a misleading term. Uh, what I'm really dealing with here is the revival of that British project, which came to be known eventually as the new, new let's see, the International Greek Testament Project. The International Greek Testament Project. It was really a combination of British and American scholars. And the reason I have Claremont here is that a lot of the work was done at Claremont in California, Southern California, where there is a, um, a museum called the uh, Ancient Biblical Manuscript, something or other. And they have either uh, the actual manuscripts or photocopies, or not photocopies, but the microfilms of, of virtually everything. The, um, the work went on in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, and finally, after all those years, uh, they were able to come out with a volume on Luke, actually two volumes on Luke, and I have volume one here, which you can uh, see later, and it is called the New Testament in Greek, uh, production of the International Greek Testament Project, uh, put up by Oxford. And J.K. Eliot, whom I mentioned before as one of these radical eclectics, uh, is the one responsible for this. He wasn't doing textual criticism here. He's just giving you facts. And um, it's, a, it's the most exhaustive thing anybody has ever done, the Gospel of Luke. There's work uh, now proceeding on the Gospel of John, but it hasn't gotten very far. And then the last item here, again, it's this uh, institute, Institut für Textforschung uh, in Münster, Münster. This is the work uh, headed by Kurt Aland and then by his uh, wife, Barbara Aland, who is now the director of the project. And um, this has been going on now for many decades, and there desire was to produce a truly exhaustive edition, but not to do it the way that these silly British people were doing it, uh, but rather to come up with a new reconstructed critical text. Well, this was announced about 30 years ago, and back in the 70s, they even came out with a sample of what it was going to look like. Could you uh, switch the uh, middle? Yeah. Uh, I realize you cannot see this, but maybe you can at least figure out the basic pattern of the page. This is what they said it was going to look like. They have changed their mind since, but you can still get a sense of the complexity. There's exactly one line of text, and the rest of the page is text critical information. Um, each word or missing word 
is given a number, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, so that then when you go down here, uh, you can refer to the top of the page to see where that the variations go. Well, uh, that's how extensive this thing is. But before they could finish it, they had to continue doing a tremendous amount of uh, work collating minuscules. And Kurt Allen took a lot of pride in saying that this is now the age of the minuscules. Now finally, because of computer uh, technology and so on, it is possible to collate this material in a way that people simply couldn't do before because the, the amount of work is, is absolutely, uh, I mean, just makes your knees water. And, um, but now they figure out a method whereby I think there are 1,000 places in the New Testament which they chose as passages that could clearly identify the specific textual character of manuscript. So they went through all of these manuscripts instead of doing the whole New Testament that would have taken two millennia. They just took those 100 passages and then they were able to make a pretty reliable determination as to whether that manuscript was worth setting aside and then doing a full collation of the manuscript or not. And uh, we now are beginning to get the fruits of that and uh, having a much more, uh, much fuller information about all these minuscules at Scribner, see, wanted to see examined. They have, in the course of their work, put out volumes of all kinds of things. For example, they, we have in the library uh, the initial publication of the Syriac, a very full edition of the Syriac of the Catholic epistles. They decided to begin with the Catholic epistles because the British were doing the Gospels, you see. And uh, they have put this out. Now they can use the Syriac version in a way that had not been done before. And they have put out, um, you know, massive volumes of statistical data about all the manuscripts and so on. And uh, maybe before all of us die here, uh, we will see the fruit of, of some of that uh, begin to, uh, to come out. I mentioned all these things to you so that um, you're partly aware of what's going on out there. It may be that at some point in your own studies you, you have a very special uh, research project of your own or whatever and uh, you may want to be aware of where you can look for information about these things. With regard to so-called handy editions of the Greek New Testament, there have many that have been published, and uh, all that I want to talk about here are these two things which um, are the most uh, widely used, the United Bible Society's text and the Nestle Allen text. The UBS text is the one that I see many of you have, has that maroon cover. And uh, this is a very interesting project. Back in the uh, late 50s, or early 60s, the uh, United Bible Societies were interested in coming out with, a, with an edition of the Greek New Testament that would be particularly suited for translators. And for that reason, it would also be very valuable for students. So they got together a number of famous scholars, including Bruce Metzger, Kurt Arland, and a few others, and asked them to go and hide in some place during the summer 
and hash things out and come out with a new text. Uh, so the consensus of this committee of four or five people would be the, uh, the basis for their uh, choices and for that particular text. In the apparatus, in the footnotes, they were commissioned, and by the way, the, the, the brain behind this was Eugene Nida, Executive Secretary of the, of, uh, the Bible Society, and um, he had a lot of uh, experience both with linguistics and translation, and he felt he had a pretty good idea of what was needed. But the idea was the footnotes would be very selective. Uh, please don't give us all of these textual variants that make very little difference, if any, for most translators, but choose only textual variants that might make a difference in how you translate the text. Since you do not have to give us a lot of variants, give us as much information as possible on each variant. And that's why if you look at the bottom of the UBS text, uh, you find that there are only one or two, maybe three at the most variants on a page. But for each variant, you're giving a whole long list of manuscripts and fathers and versions and all kinds of things. Another very interesting feature of that edition, uh, NIDA apparently asked the commission, please give the users of the text some indication with regard to the degree of probability about your decision. So when you go to the bottom of the page, uh, for each variant, you're given an A, B, C, or D rating. An A rating is the way of saying to you, we're you know, as sure as we can be that this is a correct reading. B, we're quite sure, but uh, there's at least one fellow in the committee that couldn't vote with us, or you know, who knows. Uh, C, now that's more, more doubtful. And uh, frankly, we're not all that sure. And D, we have no idea what's going on here. Paraphrase of uh, <laughs> descriptions. Now, I'll go back to the UBS in a minute, but now I have to uh, tell you something about the <coughs> Nestle text. At the end of the 19th century, a um, German scholar by the name of Nestle, no kinship with the chocolate, decided that there, there was a need for a text of the Greek New Testament which in some way reflected the consensus of scholarship at that time. And he came up with a brilliant idea to make it as compact as possible. He would use these little signs. He would put uh, Europe on the text, and then he might have a little circle next to a word. And that immediately uh, indicated that there's going to be an omission of that word in some manuscripts. So when you go down to the bottom of the page, all he has to do is list the manuscripts that omit the word. And every other manuscript, by implication, supports what's in the text. Signs which are a little confusing at first, but you get used to them. Uh, it was wonderful. And his own text was really, as I said, a consensus. What he did is he saw what Tischendorf did, what Hort did, what Weiss did, 
And if they agreed, he would use it. If there was a difference of, of opinion, he would take the majority. Two agree with this, and one doesn't, so I'll take the one that, that they agree with. Now, in one sense, that's kind of a, you know, an irrational way of doing things. But uh, it was uh, ideal for other purposes. And the, and the Nestle text became the scholar's text. Because it had, uh, in, you know, it was a pocket edition. You could carry it around and had a, quite a bit of information in the footnotes. And many editions of this were published over the decades. And every time there was a new edition, more information was given. Kurt Aland was the one who was asked to take up uh, the work after Nestle and his son uh, died, first Edwin and Eberhard and so on. When Kurt Aland took it up, he produced uh, an edition or two, I forget now. And then when the 25th edition came out in the early 60s, an announcement was made that so much progress had been already accomplished in textual criticism that the next edition, which would be the 26th, would be quite different. And many, many changes would be were to be expected. Now, normally, uh, see, if I, I, it was a 25th edition. There were a lot of editions. Every four or five years, a new edition would come out. So people expected a new edition within four or five years. Well, they had to wait 17 years, almost, for the next edition. Maybe that's 16 or something because uh, it was more work than he, had, uh, than he had anticipated. Now, something very interesting happens, and, and uh, you need to know this. Kurt Aland is doing work on his Nestle Aland text at the same time that he's doing work on the exhaustive uh, project at Munster on the Catholic epistles. And at the same time as he's meeting with these other people for the UBS text. Now, I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> no. Uh, the man is amazing, well, without any doubt. For the second edition of the UBS text, a number of changes were made. And now, what was happening? Every time that Kurt Allen comes to a meeting, he tells him, look, there's all this work we've been doing, and I'm suggesting this and the other. And frequently, the, the rest of the committee would accept the recommendations that Alan would bring based on all this other work, you see. And vice versa. Sometimes the decisions of the committee would convince Kurt Alan to make certain changes on his text. As the years went by, the two texts got closer and closer. And they made the decision, very wise decision, I think, that they would be identical. So what happened was, when the third edition of the UBS text came out, there was a self-conscious decision that the text would be identical to the text of the 26th edition of Nestle Island, which came out in the late 70s. And uh, as a result, now, this text becomes a, a new standard of, of sorts. What should you use? Well, by now, in fact, just in the past year and a half, there has appeared the fourth edition of the UBS text and the 27th edition of the Nestle Allen text. Fortunately, 
the text itself has not changed. Okay, so um, the UBS third and fourth edition is the same text as the Nestle Allen 26th and 27th edition. So that, you know, if, if you're reading the, the actual text, you know, Romans 5.1 or whatever it may be, uh, it will be the same in all these four editions. But of course, the apparatus is very different. See, for the Nestle Allen text, they tried to give you as many variants as possible. And they tried to compress the information as much as possible. And uh, there's a lot of debate about the relative merits of each. Uh, there are some people who say, well, I want as much information as possible. So I like the UBS text. And they give me all the manuscripts and all the fathers and all the versions and everything. That's great. The question is, have any idea what all those things mean? Uh, how many people are able to evaluate responsibly all of that information? Probably nobody. Uh, I mean, even the experts uh, cannot master all of those details anyway. And uh, one could argue that in the case of the Nestle Allen text, here you have a scholar who is kind of uh, interpreting the evidence for you and selecting it to make it more digestible. And uh, that means that you have to trust them a little bit more, perhaps, but uh, it is probably a better way to go. This year, we decided to start recommending um, this. You don't have to, to have it. Um, in the past, people didn't like it because the format was smaller and it was a little bit more difficult to read. This format now is larger, wonderful, clear type with uh, you know, the margins a little bit uh, bigger and so on. And um, there are a couple of things about this edition that are, are very good. One is not only that it gives you a little bit of uh, familiarity with, with uh, this way of handling textual variations, which sometimes can be important, but there's a wonderful system of cross-references probably the best there is around, because they're cross-referenced not only to the Greek New Testament itself, but also to the Septuagint. And uh, it's uh, highly, widely recognized as, as very useful. So, um, you know, uh, if you're interested in New Testament studies, uh, this is uh, something to have. The uh, UBS text is useful, obviously, because uh, you have... Um, uh, all this extra information, and you have that grading. In the fourth edition, by the way, they revised that whole thing, system of grading, and, and now there are lots more A's and B's than there used to be before. Based on additional documents that have been discovered or cataloged? They don't say, to tell you the truth. And I think what happened was that they found people were misunderstanding the nature of, of those grades. And uh, when people see a B, they tend to think it is not as important as an A. I mean, it, it, it's, it's reason to be doubtful. And I think what the committee was trying to do now is to help people appreciate that the many readings that were given a B before, they did not intend to, to say that they were doubtful. They said they were probably being too cautious or something. 
and now they have revised them to represent a little bit more accurately what they think they need to communicate about their understanding of the text. But there are some ambiguities anyway, and, and uh, some debate about it. Um, well, let, let me stop at that uh, point. There are other, other editions that have been put out by a number of scholars in different settings, and um, they are good for, um, uh, for extensive studying, but at this point, uh, probably uh, students would not profit a great deal from making comparisons uh, of them. And you also have to be aware of specialized resources here and there. Uh, sometimes articles are published in the journals where you have you know, a whole article devoted to a textual problem or a series of related problems. And uh, you need to be aware that these things exist because at, you know, at some point, and you know, the question about uh, why bother, well, if you happen to be preaching a sermon somewhere or giving a Bible study or whatever, and someone comes up and says, wait a minute, but my Bible says this, or my professor at the university said that that's not a good reading, and you find that you want to do a little bit of extra work to uh, figure out what may be the evidence for one or the other, uh, if you're aware that occasionally you may find a rather extensive treatment of a textual problem, sometimes in the commentary, sometimes in the journal, sometimes in some book of, of collected articles, uh, you go to the indexes, you know, in the, in the libraries, and you may be able to find them, yeah. Well, uh, the, the primary journals in New Testament studies are JBL, which is the Journal of Biblical Literature, NTS, New Testament Studies, which is a British uh, journal, the, the journal of the Studiorum uh, Novi Testamenti Societas. There's Novum Testamentum, uh, published in uh, the Netherlands. There is the Zeitschrift um, für die Neutestamentliche and something or other, uh, ZNT for short. And uh, many of the articles here are in German, but not all of them. Uh, Biblica is a very important journal as well. There are a number of others. Yeah. The apparatus only gives documentary evidence. No apparatus ever gives information about that. Now, what, what they did do, uh, and this is one of the specialized resources that you should be aware of, in fact, I want you to use, Bruce Metzger, as the secretary of the committee for the UBS text, was asked to prepare a volume in, he would, in which he would summarize the reasons um, that the committee had for their decisions. And uh, the volume is known as a textual commentary in the New Testament. And uh, it is the only work of its kind where for each textual problem uh, listed in the UBS, there's a little discussion. And in the discussion, they do talk about internal evidence of readings, intrinsic and transcription probability. But uh, it, would be, it would not be appropriate in an edition of the Greek New Testament to do anything but to list the actual evidence from the manuscripts. No, in, 
any, anybody who does a, a critical edition, that's what it means. It means you give the documents in support of a reading. Uh, but what your decisions have been to choose a reading or another may have been based not just on the documentary information, but on uh, intrinsic probability or whatever. Yeah. Yes. So barring the Oh, no. No. No, no. Now, this, I, this represents uh, a current consensus. That's all. Uh, I think as uh, people continue to work, reflect on the evidence, there's more debate, uh, new additions come out that you can see all the evidence in a different light, uh, I have no doubt that there will be subsequent meetings. And I suspect that probably the next edition will involve some changes in the text. Who knows? Yeah. What's the term local text mean? The local text theory uh, was simply a theory that tried to identify the geographical location of specific textual families. Yeah. Pardon? Tischendorf, Hort, and Weiss. Yeah. Oh, no. No. Now, it is true, maybe this is what you're reflecting on, that because um, the Roman Catholic Church um, had made the Vulgate the official Bible, that uh, it took a while for the Roman Catholics to, to get involved in the textual criticism of the Greek New Testament uh, in the same, to the same degree. But uh, even that may be a little misleading. Remember what I said, that even before Erasmus did his work, already the, uh, the, the people from Alcala were pre uh, preparing their own edition. So, um, and in fact, there are a number of uh, editions, handy editions of the Greek New Testament produced by Roman Catholic scholars that uh, have been very, very valuable in the past. And at least one, uh, Martini, of the members of the committee of, of UBS uh, is a Roman Catholic scholar. That, not so much, because if the Eastern Church uh, would think of what we call the Byzantine text, uh, give a lot more weight to that. And I'm sure that there are scholars, uh, in fact, there is a Greek uh, scholar uh, in the com commission as well. But uh, the church as a whole probably is a little resistant to, to doing too much in that area. Okay, the hour is almost over, and I do want to give you a chance to look at these things. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be giving you a sample of the paper that I want you to do. And we're going to go over it. And you'll have the rest of the week to do some work on that. I hope you will do some work this week so that if you have any questions next Monday, you can uh, ask them. And then you can finish the paper uh, next week, and uh, then you'll be in business. Um, it will take a little bit of work, but as I said, I don't want you to spend lots of hours. Um, and I'll be giving you some, uh, some guidelines as to how much time you ought to spend on this or the other. Let me just say a little bit about what I have here. All these, well, most of these um, are kept in the rare book room in the basement of the library. If you have real interest, uh, you know, uh, Grace Mullen will allow you to go in and, and look at these things. 
I want to ask you, please, when you come here, not to touch anything. Because when you have a large group, you know, you have best intentions in the world, but then things get out of hand. So, no touching. Um, begin with the uh, principal edition of the photographs of Papyrus 46. And I have it open to the first page of uh, Ephesians. The second thing is, thing is Codex Sinaiticus. And I have a little card. Don't move the card because right over the card is Romans 5.1. And you can see the omega in the line and then the little omicron on top of the omega. Codex Vaticanus. I have it open to Galatians 1. Now remember, this is a great manuscript. The copy is a very fine scribe. But when he, when he got to Galatians 1, it was mid-afternoon. He had had a big lunch. And there's a place where, where Paul says, I make known to you the gospel which was preached to you, to euangelion, to euangelisten. Now, that's always trouble when you have two words begin to say to euangelion, to euangelisten. Well, you read there, to euangelion, to euangelion, to euangelion. <laughs> And then he woke up. Um, this is um, Erasmus 1522 edition, the second edition of his Greek New Testament. I have it open to 1 John 5, where he added you know, the statement about the three witnesses in heaven after all the pressure. Then the edition by Mill of 1707. His, the 30,000 variants are here. Tischendorf's 8th edition, the Wordsworth and White critical edition of the Vulgate. This is only just one volume for the Book of Acts. And then the International Greek Project on uh, the Gospel of Luke. And I have here in my pocket a prized possession of the library. This is a 1628 edition of the Greek New Testament. And I'll let you take a look at it as, as you pass by. So... Um, <laughs> 